The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Well, welcome and thanks for joining me for this episode of Business and Legal Week in Review. This is utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station, and I'm your host, Peter Lamont. Well, I'd like to welcome everybody. Today is December 7th, 2015, and it's the 74th anniversary of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, and it is uh, being commemorated today uh, in ceremonies in Hawaii and really throughout the U.S. And, you know, we think back to um, a time that most of us have difficulty remembering or, or many of us were not even around and think about what it might be like or what it must have been like to experience the first foreign attack on U.S. soil and how those servicemen and women had to deal with that. I mean, I think it's become a little more, I don't want to say commonplace, and it sounds like a terrible thing, but... Perhaps we have become desensitized because of the terrorism that we see worldwide. And clearly 9-11 was uh, such a, an overwhelming, traumatic experience that we are used to it now. I hate to say it. Um, you know, the attacks in Paris a few weeks ago. All of these things that we see now from these terrorist groups uh, have become something that we live with. But think back to you know, Pearl Harbor, when, you know, 2,400 people died. And that was the first time that I think this country has ever seen something like that. So um, truly something that we should always remember and commemorate. So uh, today is Pearl Harbor Day. Also, I just want to mention that yesterday was, for those of you who celebrate Hanukkah, the first night of Hanukkah, uh, which is the Jewish, Jewish Festival of Lights. And I, I happened to be at the Devils game, the New Jersey Devils versus Florida Panthers hockey game last night. Uh, this is the second time I happened to be at the Prudential Center in Newark during some sort of holiday or event. I was there on Halloween and then last night. And the Prudential Center always does really a nice job of recognizing whatever special night or event it is. Um, and on top of that, the Devils won. So... That is a good night. All right, before we get into the news, I just want to thank today's sponsor. And today's show is sponsored by DLS.net, DLS Internet Services. They really are the superheroes for small businesses and for law firms because they make it easy to unify communications, securely store data, create a private cloud space for virtual work, and do it all here in the U.S. from one of their many locations. Now, they include 24-7 tech support by U.S. certified techs, and they handle compliance issues and have been around for over 20 years. They make it easy and affordable, and by the way, they also happen to be partners in the National Association of Legal Professionals, IT. And so if you are a small business or a law firm and you're looking for a complete IT networking solution, then check out DLS 
www.thepodcastnetwork.net. All right, so before we get into the news, I just want to make a couple of announcements. Last week was kind of a crazy week, uh, very kind of interrupted week. I was had a man cold, and so I was out for a couple days, and that sort of screwed up the schedule. So there were a reduced number of podcasts last week and videos, but I do want to make mention of something that you might find interested that did air last week. It was episode 239, and it dealt with, it was a business Q&A, and it dealt with the need for small businesses to understand what they're signing. And if you're a small business or you work with small businesses, it's really important, I think, that you take a listen to this podcast. It's not overly long, but it really explains the importance as to why you need to understand exactly what you're signing. There's this misconception, I think, uh, with a lot of small businesses that, oh, you know, I'm getting it from this vendor. I don't really need to, to read it and understand it. I trust them or I don't have the time, or it looks okay, any of these things. And then at the end of the day, you could have a problem, and you go back and you look at your documentation, and it's not what you had expected. So we talk about that on episode 239. That's available now, uh, obviously free on Blog Talk Radio. It's also free on iTunes. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please make sure you do so. It's totally free, and you get notified about new episodes Also, by the way, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel because there is different content on the YouTube channel than there is on the podcast. Also, I want to talk about the YouTube channel. Last week, we put up a video, Vacating a Default Judgment Does Not Mean You Win Your Case, and another video about the importance of calendaring your court dates. So if you're interested in learning more about this, check out the YouTube channel. Now, just a a word about this idea of vacating a default judgment and not winning the case. This was the result of a phone call that I had received last, I guess maybe it was two weeks ago. And it was someone thanking me for putting up the video about how to vacate a default judgment. And I was really actually very, um, I guess, pleased and uh, and flattered that uh, this gentleman followed the guidelines, the overview, and managed Pro Se to do it himself and vacate the judgment. And he was calling to thank me for winning the case. And I had to go through it with him and explain that just because you sort of opened up the case and you vacated the default judgment, it doesn't mean you win the case. It means that that you can now go back into the case and actively defend it. But that and more information uh, about that topic is in the video, Vacating a Default Judgment Does Not Mean You Win. And then we also talked about the importance of calendaring your court dates, especially when you're pro se. And I talk about some tips and tricks that we as attorneys use to make sure that we don't blow dates because blowing a date or a deadline can have absolutely disastrous effects on your case, even if you had all your ducks in a row and your case was kind of ironclad. If you blow a date, sometimes there's no way to recover from that. So check out that video as well. All right, now let's just jump into it. We're going to start today with a an interesting story, but it's something that I think we've seen a lot of lately, and this is the Syrian refugees. Now, Texas has been trying to block the entry of a a Syrian refugee family uh, from entering the state. And last week, they dropped its demand 
to prohibit the refugees from entering after federal officials responded with information about three Syrian family state officials said. So Texas sued the United States and the nonprofit International Rescue Committee last Wednesday in federal court, claiming that the U.S. failed to consult regularly with it on its refugee program before the placement of Texas. So in other words, Texas is saying, federal government, you're just taking refugees and dropping them into Texas, and you're sort of overlooking our sovereignty, uh, uh, or sovereignty as a state and that we have rights too. You can't just take people and drop them in Texas because you're the federal government. Um, the IRC was assisting three refugee fami families. It was six people and they were trying to get them into Texas. Now Texas claimed that the IRC at the direction of the federal government failed to provide even basic information about the state's security concerns. It claimed that it violated the Refugee Act of 1980. So Texas ended up suing the IRC and they shrugged this whole thing off. Uh, they wrote a letter and, and basically uh, responded to the Texas Health and Human Services Commissioner um, saying, you know, too bad, federal law prevails. And, um, you know, that clearly is a hot issue because you've got to balance the power of the federal government versus the sovereignty of the states. And that's always something that is very contentious. Um, you know, Texas is is obviously a powerhouse state and we all know about the reputation of texans and but here i think that this makes a good point i think that to just say hey we're going to drop refugees in your state without even giving you the opportunity to see what documents we have to sort of alleviate your safety concerns i mean doesn't the state of texas or any state for that matter have the right to say well wait a minute before you just put somebody in our state. Can't we know about them? And I think that that's really the main issue, um, is that the, Texas wasn't given the opportunity to even look at who was coming in. And that's really uh, what, what's going on here. Uh, but, you know, we've got this whole idea that the federal government can do whatever they want. And, you know, it, we're going to see how that plays out. But clearly, there has been an order... Uh, by the federal government saying that, you know, states can't prohibit or block the placement of Syrian refugees. We will see where this goes. I don't expect that it's going to go away yet, but it is interesting that Texas um, dropped the demand last week, even though it filed the lawsuit. So we'll see how that plays out. All right, next I want to talk about a, a um, suit that has been revived in California over mislabeled organics. Now, we all know about organic products and their alleged healthy um, properties. Okay, so the idea here is that if you're super healthy and you're looking to, you know, buy things that are hormone free and that are not treated with any sort of pesticides or chemicals, then you want to go organic. And um, while I can't say that I'm organic, you know, overall, I mean, certainly there are certain things that I prefer to purchase that are organic. And how do you know if something is truly organic or not? Well, that's easy. You look at the label and whatever's on the label has got to be true, right? Well, maybe not so. And in California, consumers have now been permitted, the court has ruled that the consumers can sue growers under state law 
if they believe that a food product is incorrectly labeled as organic. And this is um, coming out of the California Supreme Court. The unanimous decision announced Thursday overturns an appellate court's ruling that the Federal Organic Food Production Act of 1990 preempts such lawsuits. Again, here we're talking about the preemption of federal law over state law and the California Supreme Court saying that federal law does not trump, that the state does have this right and that this lawsuit can be brought under California law, not preempted by the federal government. That issue was an allegation in a class action accusing Herb Time Farms, Herb Time Farms, one of the nation's largest herb producers with multiple farms throughout California, of selling conventionally grown herbs as organic. Most of the company's farms grow herbs conventionally, but one of the farms is certified as organic. Lead plaintiff in the case says that Herb Time mixes its non-organic and organic herbs together and then falsely labels the product as 100% organic and changes uh, or charges a premium for them because obviously uh, organic products have a much higher price tag. For those of you who, who have ever shopped at Whole Foods, you know that Whole Foods is certainly a lot more expensive than um, maybe a traditional supermarket like Food Town or, um, well, there, I, there's no A&P anymore, right? It's, it's Acme, at least here on the East Coast. Uh, there's Kroger's, but those general sort of supermarkets, they don't charge as much as places like Whole Foods, but you know, that's because this idea of organic and it's, it's, it's wholesome and healthy and a lot of people will pay that premium price. But here, you know, when you've got a, an allegation that the grower is mixing organic with non-organic and then charging that premium price, clearly that is going to spawn some investigation and obviously here, a lawsuit. Now, the complaint was filed under California's Consumer Legal Remedies Act, unfair competition law, and false advertising statutes. Herbtime argued that such claims could not be brought in state court because they're preempted under the 1990 Federal Organics Law, which established national baseline standards for the production, labeling, and sale of organic products. The Second District Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the farm in 2013, finding that state lawsuits over labeling foods as organic would interfere with Congress's purpose of establishing uniform national standards for organic production and labeling. But in a 7-0 ruling, the state Supreme Court found that the federal preemption is limited to issues of production and organic certification, not to deception. So here is the distinction. We're talking about a deceptive or allegedly deceptive act not what is regulated by the federal government. Nothing in the provisions of the Organic Food Act governing sanctions for misuse of the organic label indicates federal exclusivity. Justice Catherine um, Words, Wordsiger, sorry for murdering your name, Judge, uh, wrote for the court, as a matter of, exp uh, of express preemption, we have no reason to conclude that Congress intended its federal remedies as not only a floor ensuring that whatever else state law might provide for, uh, some teeth would back up the new federal regulations of organic labeling, but also as a ceiling with states prohibited from continuing to, ar uh, to argue 
these limited remedies. It is a wordy sentence, but that's what the judge said. Furthermore, far from posing an obstacle to the federal law, state claims, such as those put forth by the plaintiff, affirmatively further the purposes of the act, the court said. Intentionally marketing conventionally grown products as organic undermines the assurances the USDA organic label is intended to provide, according to the court. Conversely, the presumption of such fraud whether by public prosecutors where resources and state law permit, or through civil suits by individuals or groups of consumers, can only serve to deter mislabeling and enhance consumer confidence, said the judge. So here we see now the California State Supreme Court saying, wait a minute, yes, there is the federal law, yes, it is um, responsible or preempts state law with respect to the labeling, of organic products, but it doesn't have any effect or doesn't preempt, I should say, when you've got claims or allegations that somebody is committing fraud. Now, of course, the farm denies and disputes all of these allegations, but with this Supreme Court ruling, now the case can continue on the merits. This was essentially a technical dismissal because the argument that went through the Court of Appeals was saying that you can't even bring this suit, it's, it's preempted by federal law, and now the Supreme Court says, no, you can. So it comes all the way back down to the state court level, and now the case will get going. So this is how it is sometimes in, in litigation. It's very difficult, I think, for non-lawyers to kind of wrap their head around the fact that you could have a case that was filed two years ago, and because of procedural arguments, Maybe nothing substantive has happened. And you know, you could end up being in litigation for three, four, five years and you know, not getting to that end result until much further down the line. But it's just something that I think we need to be aware of because um, I don't know, I, I think there's this idea that litigation can happen quickly. And I think that in some courts, because the lower court level, like for example, in New Jersey, the uh, special civil division, that's what most people avail themselves of when they're acting pro se because the damages are below 15,000 in, in um, New Jersey. At least that's the threshold, so you've got to be below 15. And it's kind of an easier court to manage. The court dates are much shorter. You could file a lawsuit in December and get a trial date at the end of January, but that's not how it is in the main trial court level. It can take years, and I think it's important to be aware of that. All right, moving along to Marvel. Marvel, the comic giant, Marvel CEO faces a New York subpoena battle. A Florida businessman has subpoenaed records he hopes will show that the head of Marvel launched a vicious hate mail campaign falsely accusing him of child molestation and murder. Harold Pirenboom filed the petition on Thanksgiving Eve in Manhattan County Supreme Court saying that Marvel should hand over email logs of Isaac Perlmutter, the entertainment giant CEO and billionaire stockholder of its parent company, Disney. Pirenboom claims that records contain information regarding a neighborhood dispute between him and Perlmutter, which escalated to a point where savagely slanderous letters about Pirenboom have been circulated around their upscale community 
of Sloan's Curve in Palm Beach, Florida. The letters were also sent via the Postal Service to hundreds of, hundreds of Purim Boom's business associates and friends in the U.S. and Canada, and to teachers at Crestwood School, an educational facility co-founded by Pierenboom. Pierenboom says the hate mail falsely states that he sexually molested a child in Sloan's Curve and was responsible for the 2013 murder of two Canadian citizens, one of whom was the former director at Crestwood. Other letters portrayed Pierenboom as an anti-Semite who endorsed Hitler's final solution and who advocated violent retribution against the Jewish neighbors in the Sloan's Curve community. Yet another round of letters made to look like Pierenboom wrote them, wrote them himself was purportedly sent to random prison inmates and their family members hurling vile insults at the felons. These mailings included Pierenboom's address, not so subtly inviting the inmates to seek revenge on him as the purported author. Pierenboom says he received a chilling message from a harasser who took delight in inciting the inmates. The message referenced a serious car crash in which Pierenboom had been involved. We heard around the neighborhood that you had died in a car accident, the message said, according to the complaint. I was looking into buying my ticket to Canada so I could spit, dance, urinate on your grave. No one will be happy until you leave our neighborhood, until you leave, leave Sloan's Curve. Get out now, the message supposedly continued. Pierenboom's claims that this bad blood stemmed from a 2013 quarrel over who should run, the, you can't make this stuff, who should run the tennis center in Sloan's Curve. Pierenboom challenged the posh community's reinstatement of its tennis center management contract with instructor Karen Donnelly, a move that he claims drew ire from the Marvel CEO. Now, here is something that's mind-blowing. How a CEO of a company like Marvel, I mean, we're talking about big time, billion dollars, right? Not some small business owner that's angry with something that was said. Marvel. Now, again, these are allegations, right? We don't know if they're true, but assuming that the allegations are true, assuming, how could somebody in that position of CEO of Marvel do some of these things that are alleged. Accusing somebody of murder. I mean, first of all, I'd have to say this. How does a CEO have the time to write letters to inmates in prison and say, here, go to Pierenboom's uh, address. He wrote the letter. Who has time for that? I mean, I don't know if he has a staff dedicated to just writing hate mail, but you know, and again, these are allegations. We're reporting this as alleged in the complaint. I have no idea whether they're true or not. That's for a jury to decide. But the way the courts look at pleadings, as long as they're pled properly, a complaint is deemed to be true. Uh, obviously, you have to prove all of your allegations, but that's, that's the way the legal system works. Interesting here, though, this started over something so silly. Yet we find ourselves oftentimes getting sucked into these vicious disputes that ultimately lead to lawsuits generally over silly things. You know, somebody did something to me, somebody, especially with neighbor disputes, I've seen it all the time. Oh, you know, they pulled over, uh, they backed over my, my begonias and I want to sue them for it. And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. 
But a lesson to learn, because I have had many people say to me, well, if the legal system can't help in my situation, I'll take matters into my own hands. And I just want to point out that taking matters into your own hands and doing something like what is alleged here, writing hate mail and getting people to think that uh, this gentleman did something that he might not have done is a very, very dangerous, dangerous thing to do. Not only are there civil penalties for something like this, but really you've got to be worried about criminal charges that could potentially be filed. So I, I just don't, I don't see the logic behind doing something like this. Again, I don't know how the CEO of Marvel had the time, but don't think that you're not going to get caught, especially in today's day and age with high tech tracking, you know, people know where the email was generated, what the IP address is. Not a good idea to go and do something like that. There are other alternatives and quite frankly, arguing over who runs the tennis center does not seem to be really the most important thing. But then again, I guess when you are a multi-millionaire or billionaire, you need things to busy yourself with. And I guess arguing over tennis ownership is what you guys do. So I wouldn't know. I would be happy just to be able to be a member of a tennis club. All right, moving along, uh, obviously December is the month that we all think about charitable donations and giving. And I want to just say before I get into the story that it's really kind of a shame that we limit our charity to one time a year. It's December when we see people thinking about donating and trying to give and trying to help people. And while it's, it's certainly easier to kind of remember charity in the month of December because we see the Salvation Army guys or girls with their bells. We see people that are in need here on the, on the East Coast and, and certainly in some of the colder states. You know, you see people that might be homeless without jackets and you kind of get that sense of urgency and, oh, something needs to be done to help people. But in other times of the year, we kind of don't see that. You know, when spring is here and the weather's getting warm, it's really not something that I see, you know, donations being taken for homeless people or underprivileged people. And I just think that charity is a year-round event. It's not something that just happens on, uh, you know, the holidays or in the month of December. So I would just encourage you, I mean, if you are in a position to help others and those less fortunate, do it. Because the, the rewards for yourself, whether you're a religious person or not, um, you know, it, it's, it's tenfold. And when you help people, and it just makes you feel unbelievable and, um, you know, kind of connects you to the world when we live in such a world where there's so much disconnect and hate. So um, that's just my soapbox message for the day. Um, don't limit charity to December. But getting to the story at hand here, we've got a donated car charity that is being called a cold ruse. So this coming out of Courthouse News in Ventura, California, a so-called nonprofit Cars for Causes claims to accept donated cars for charity but paid its owners and cronies millions of dollars and owes million, millions more to thousands of charities and lacks the ability to pay it back, the California, uh, California claims in court. So Attorney General 
Kamala Harris and the Ventura County District Attorney sued the family-owned nonprofit on December 1st in Superior Court, alleging self-dealing, breach of charitable trust, unfair competition, and seven other causes of action. Briefly, the state accuses the family of hiring their out their own um, or lining, I should say, lining their own pockets from the donated cars and failing to deliver the money to charities as promised. Cars for Causes, based in Ventura, is or was run by co-defendants Patty Livingston, the president of its board of directors, her mother, Pat Jessup, the executive director, and Matthew Smith, an officer, director, and compensated executive, the attorney general says. Also sued are MMI Capital Corp., a profit-seeking Nevada corporation run by Smith, which was paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to design, approve, and control the content of C4C's charitable solicitations and accountants. Now, you know, this is interesting because when you think of a nonprofit, I think that there is a misconception as far as, well, well what does that mean? Nonprofit means what all of the donations they go to a charity, right? Well, not necessarily. In fact, that's a very rare situation. If you look at places like the March of Dimes or um, you know the Cancer Association or the American Heart Association, these organizations aren't nonprofit. They're charitable organizations, but they have people running them. And those people are under the not-for-profit laws entitled to be compensated. So in other words, you can take a salary as a nonprofit administrator, but the rest and residue or the residual of what you collect goes to the charity. Um, but unfortunately, and, and that's the legit way of doing it, right? You've got to expect that if somebody's doing a full-time job running a charitable foundation, that they would need to be compensated so that they can live because as much as we like to be uh, philanthropists, you, you've got to have money in order to survive in today's world. So that's the legit way of doing it. I get that, right? I mean, that makes sense to everybody, I think, that um, you know, you've got to take off those expenses, you pay them out, and then the rest goes to the charity. Unfortunately, with a lot of small non-for-profits, it's very easy to set it up. It's a matter of filing it and then you know, seeking um, approval for tax-exempt status from the federal government, from the IRS, and then you're up and running. And what you do with the money, nobody's watching until you get caught. So you can have a lot of people um, who are making donations and you're giving them receipts. They don't ask for you know, your, your account statement. Where is this money going? Look at USA to Af uh, for Africa years ago in the 80s when um, We Are the World first came out. And all that money supposedly going to feed hungry people in Africa, a lot of it, most of it, if I recall correctly, never got there. And that was a non-profit organization. My point here is this. If you are in charge of or running or thinking about opening a non-profit, you must be strong and, and realize that there is always the temptation there for you to kind of dip into the funds that are for the charity. Don't. 
just don't do it because you're going to end up getting in serious, serious trouble. You know, I think what happens, and I'm not saying that this is what happened with Cars for Causes, but I think that it's easy to see some money in your account and you take a little, you know, and you say, all right, I'll make that up to the charity. I just need a little for expenses or whatever. And then when you take it, you realize that, well, nobody said anything to me. Well, all right, the next time you take a little bit more. Again, nobody says anything. And then you take a little bit more. And before you know it, you are diverting money meant for that charity, meant for charitable organizations, and you're taking it. And that is a crime, quite frankly. And that's why here you've got the state of California prosecuting all of these people associated with cars for causes. Um, so, you know, I think that it's just something you've got to be aware of. In this case, the charges include breach of fiduciary duty, aiding and abetting, untrue and misleading statements, unjust enrichment, and negligence. So I, I just can't sort of stress enough. I've had a lot of people who would say, hey, if I start a nonprofit, can I do this and this and this with the money and then um, give a limited amount back to the charity? It's something you really need to talk to a lawyer about. Um, one thing that I saw not too long ago, for those of you who are reality television fans, uh, at one point, The Real Housewives, it's a Bravo show of New York, I think there was allegations made against one of the people that was having these charity events. And at the end of the day, while it might have been a million dollar charity event, I think like 20,000 or less actually went to the charity because most of the money was spent on the party itself. I, I question that and I say, you know, why? Why would you have such an extravagant party when only a fraction of what the cost of that party is actually gonna to go to charity? That's crap, if you ask me. That's just nonsense. That's let's have a party for free, right? Because it's gonna be on your donation dollar and then if we've got anything left over, maybe the charity will get something. Absolute crap in my mind. All right, let's jump ahead to um, some police news. Arizona cop faces voyeurism charges. This is from Phoenix, Arizona, out of Courthouse News. An Arizona police officer secretly filmed at least 14 nude women at a tanning salon and was arrested for it, a married couple claim, in court. Tito and Lisa Davis sued Jeffrey Streeter, the city of Goodyear, and Desert Escape Tanning Center on December 3rd in Maricopa County Court, alleging negligence, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and civil rights violations. While a detective with the Goodyear Police Department in two, uh, 2014, Streeter filmed and photographed at least 14 women at the tanning salon in Avondale, the Davises say. Goodyear and Avondale are suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona. Streeter carried his police badge, police-issued firearm, duty holster, and police-issued cell phone into defendant tanning salon with him while he videotaped and photographed nude women in the tanning salon without their knowledge or consent, the lawsuit states. Streeter was arrested on October 29, 2014, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office filed a criminal complaint against him five days later, claiming he recorded the 14 women without their knowledge. 
He has pleaded not guilty and is awaiting trial. The November 3, 2014 release questionnaire in his case lists 31 counts of unlawful viewing, taping, and recording of a person and one count of tampering, altering, and destroying evidence. Streeter resigned in November of 2014, becoming the seventh Goodyear police officer to run afoul of the law or police regulations since May 2013. And that is according to the Arizona Republic. Lisa Davis said she learned that Streeter had filmed her naked at the salon on the day that he was charged when an Avondale police detective showed her a photo that Streeter took of her. According to the police reports, a customer at Desert Escape reported that she saw a person trying to record her while she was undressing. The woman told police she saw a square object poking over the wall that would disappear and reappear during her time in the tanning room. She told the staff at the salon what she witnessed and was told a male customer was in that room. Now, uh, the Davises are seeking damages and payment for medical expenses and lost earnings. So let me um, break this down a little bit here. First of all, just because you're in a position of power, and again, it doesn't just necessarily confine itself to police officers, it could be anybody, a CEO, a manager at a store, just because you're in a position of power does not give you the right to act in manners that are inappropriate, either morally, ethically, or with the law. So, you know, you, you wear a badge or, you know, you're the president of a company. You cannot do things like this. Just, just plain stupid. Stupid. And I don't understand it. Um, just makes no sense to me. But it is what it is and it was done. Now, you know, one of the counts here is intentional infliction of emotional distress. It's uh, shortened as IIED. And it really is this kind of cause of action that requires a significant amount of proof. It used to be, especially in certain states like New Jersey, where you know you didn't need to have medical proof of your damages, but nowadays you do. And that's why she's seeking medical expenses because apparently she probably, or I would say probably, not apparently, but probably was treated by a therapist. And you know those things are oftentimes not covered by insurance. And so she's seeking medical expense reimbursement, lost wages. So that says to me that she probably lost time from work as a result of this and general damages. Now, you know, it, it's, it's hard to say because I think I'm cynical from, from years of being a lawyer and knowing what plaintiff's attorneys do. Um, I don't know whether or not this woman truly has suffered emotional distress um, or this is kind of a setup done by a plaintiff's attorney. And, you know, it's not unheard of, in the least, for a person to go to a plaintiff's attorney and say, hey, listen, here's what happened to me. And the lawyer says, all right, well, here's what we need to prove your case. So why don't you start treating with this therapist and why don't you do this and that and we'll establish your damages, we'll build up your case, and then we'll file. Uh, that's the cynical part of me. The non-cynical part, which is ever so small, uh, basically, you've got somebody that really has suffered emotional distress because she was being filmed. Now, what this cop was going to do with the pictures or attempted to do, I have no idea. I don't know if it was for himself or whether he was going to try to sell them. But plain stupid and just, you know, more evidence 
of people behaving badly, especially when you are in a position of power. All right, now on to spam. Now, I'm not talking about the stuff that comes in the can. I am talking about a spam settlement arising from Lifetime Fitness. So this coming from Courthouse News in Minneapolis, dismissing a class action against Lifetime Fitness with prejudice, a federal judge approved a settlement of at least $10 million. That's huge. $10 million for consumers who claim to have received spam text messages. Class counsel, here it comes, class counsel will take home $2.8 million in fees, according to a separate order. Now, what I'm going to do is this, because I don't want to go through it on the podcast. I have the order approving the class action settlement in this case. It's Lifetime Fitness Inc., and I want to go through it on the YouTube channel. I want to break it down and show you what an order approving a class action settlement looks like because it's got a lot of value for understanding class actions in general. And I'm going to do a video uh, hopefully later on today. Hopefully it will be up today or tomorrow. And I'm going to go through this order step by step so you can understand what the judge is saying, what the court's saying, and how this is all laid out. It's gonna give you, I think, some insight into class action litigation because class action litigation is one of those things that just people don't understand. It just is, it, it kind of like flows off your lips. Oh, that's a class action lawsuit. Oh, file a class action. You know, you're sitting around the holiday table, whether it's Christmas or Hanukkah, and you got uh, Aunt Mildred saying, that's not right, file a class action, and you can't. And I want to explain that to you. We have videos about that. I'll try to drop some links um, below in the show notes for today's show talking about that. But you just this is a way to really, I think, understand. We're going to go through it on the YouTube channel. So if you're interested in that, then definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel and check out the video once I get it posted. But basically, basically what we've got here is this settlement for a spam matter. Now, you know I've received text messages from unknown senders, and I know that I didn't sign up for something, and a lot of times you just kind of let it go. But this was a very pervasive campaign, um, and it, it applies, according to the order, it applies to all persons within the United States who received a text message from Lifetime Fitness, Inc. to a cellular telephone through the use of an online texting service from January 1st, 2014, through April 15th, 2014. And huge settlement, at least in my mind, because when you think about what they did versus the amount of money they're paying out, $10 million being paid out, and what did they do? Well, they sent some text messages. I mean, it seems like a lot of money, right? Well, if you violate the Can Spam Act or any of the other federal laws concerning sending spam, yeah, you could be hit with very, very high damage claims. So you gotta be aware of that. When we go through this on the YouTube channel, I'm gonna break down some of the kind of um, issues that arise or the causes, uh, not, I, I, elements would really is the better word, elements of a class action and how it is addressed in the settlement. I just wanna point out here that the attorneys walk away out of this $10 million settlement with $2.8 million, blows my mind, $2.8 million, huge amount. 
And the class representatives, and I'll explain this on the YouTube channel, they received $3,000 each. Everybody else, well, you're probably going to get a gift card. And I'll explain that again. So if you're interested in kind of a, an overview and an analysis of this order, definitely check out the YouTube channel, and we'll get to that hopefully today or tomorrow. And finally, all right, holiday shopping in full swing, right? And you've been to the mall. I'm sure you have seen these guys on these hoverboards. They look like segways, but they don't have the handles. You remember what a segway is, right? That two wheel thing that you'd stand up on and you'd hold the handles and it was like this futuristic mode of transportation. For a while they had it at Epcot Center in Florida and you were able to take a Segway tour of Epcot. That's been done away with. There actually were some lawsuits that arose out of the use of Segways uh, because they were deemed dangerous and, and whatever. But here we're talking about these hoverboards. They're not truly a hoverboard like Marty McFly in Back to the Future used, but they're really segways without the handles. They're a platform with two wheels. I see them in the malls all the time. Everybody, you know, in their brother has some version of it that they're selling. Uh, I think it's also been being sold, it's definitely sold on Amazon and sold on shopping channels like QVC. Now, Razor, okay, they're known for those scooters. Remember Razor first came out years ago and they had that fold-up scooter? Well, they've continued to do well as a company. Razor USA is now suing Swagway over the hoverboards. Razor USA, which recently bought a patent for a two-wheel self-balancing personal vehicle, is suing leading hoverboard distributor Swagway for patent infringement, according to BuzzFeed News. According to the suit filed in U.S. District Court in California, on November 27th and obtained by BuzzFeed News, Razor alleges that Swagway infringes by making use offering for sale, selling and or importing without license or authority, Swagway, Swagway X1, Swagway Smart Balancing Electric Skateboard and related and similar products. Razor, which makes the popular scooter of the same name, entered into an exclusive licensing agreement with Shane Chen, the patent holder, last month. The hoverboard industry has already been beset by litigation, including a suit by Chen and former partner Mark Cuban against IOHawk, another leading hoverboard brand. Razor USA historically has been no stranger to litigation. The company sued more than 20 sellers of copycat scooters in the early 2000s to protect its dominance as the toy exploded in popularity. Hoverboards, including Swagway, are all manufactured in China, where the patent picture is even murkier. From there, they're typically branded by a Western distributor and sold through a variety of poorly regulated outlets. The suit by Razor may be the first step in clearing the way to take over the still young and sort of out of control Wild West market that seems to be exploding. Now, I would suggest this. I know that there are a ton of kids out there that are looking for these hoverboards for Christmas, for Hanukkah, for Kwanzaa, or, or, or whatever holiday you um, celebrate. Not only are there patent lawsuits going on, but I would, I would say this. I would be very surprised if there were not a number 
of injuries arising from these boards. I've, I've already seen videos on YouTube where people have been injured uh, because of these hoverboards. They're these self-balancing, again, little scooters, but there's no handle. And I've seen people demonstrate its use, and I've seen people who were relatively skilled at using these hoverboards fall. And sometimes, you know, they're falling forward, falling backwards. Here's the interesting part about this. These scooters right now are all manufactured in China. It is nearly impossible for a U.S. citizen to sue a Chinese manufacturer. There is the Hague Convention, the way that you'd have to go about suing them. Plus, China has been notorious for being very, very difficult to sue. Remember, China is still a communist country. Very difficult to sue. So while we've got all these hoverboards coming from China, if somebody gets hurt, who are we going to sue? And what is the likelihood of success on any of these lawsuits? And I'm going to say slim to none. So until a company like Razor takes over the manufacturing of these boards and they become made in the U.S. and you've got now a valid defendant to go after, somebody that's got money, that's, that's an established entity, I think if you guys are out there buying for your kids, your kids get hurt, I don't think that there's any legal recourse that you're going to have. Oftentimes, distributors don't get you know, uh, hit as hard as the manufacturer, and sometimes distributors get out of the case on a products liability case altogether. So it's an interesting legal analysis that would be done in the event that people start getting hurt on these things. But from a practical standpoint, if you're getting your kid one of these hoverboards, then I strongly suggest that you understand um, the safety concerns. Helmet, in my mind as a parent, is a must. If you're getting your kid a hoverboard, that kid's got to wear a helmet. That's how I feel, and I would strongly encourage you to, to look into this a little bit more closely. You see these kids at the mall, and they're skating around the kiosks, and they're trying to sell the board. But, you know, you're, you're talking about a completely smooth, level floor in a mall, and they're going around the perimeter of their kiosk, not really going all that far. Most malls prohibit the use of hoverboards, and they limit or restrict how far someone selling the hoverboard can actually go and demonstrate that product. That's why you don't see hoverboards going up and down the malls. So just because you see these guys selling the product and they're not wearing helmets or knee pads or elbow pads doesn't mean that you shouldn't think about safety for your kid. I would strongly encourage, if nothing else, a helmet. Absolutely a helmet. It scares me a little bit that... Um, you know, these are being sold the way they are. They look like fun. They look like they're easy to use. Check it out on YouTube and you can see people that are falling from these hoverboards. And, you know, it's something that's concerning. So be aware and make sure that you get your children helmets if you're getting them a hoverboard this holiday season. All right, that is going to do it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about making sure that you are on board with us at utlradio.com, meaning have you subscribed to the podcast? Have you subscribed to the YouTube channel? And when was the last time you visited utlradio.com? 
Now, we were hoping that this week we'd be able to launch the new site. I think it's probably going to be delayed a little bit and hopefully by next week we'll have the site launched, but check it out. Make sure that you are checking into utlradio.com at least once or twice a week to make sure that you stay up to date with news. And when you know the new site launches, you'll be able to be uh, to be aware of it and to, to see what's going on. I, I think the new site's going to be kind of awesome, and I think that uh, you guys will like it. So make sure you do that. But in the meantime, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and to the YouTube channel. It, it's a ton of content. It's all aimed at helping you be able to handle business and legal matters on your own pro se representation when maybe you don't need a lawyer or you can't afford a lawyer. And that's what this station, that's what this channel, that's what utlradio.com is about. All right, now I've got a question for you guys. I need your help. I'm in the process of writing two different books and I wanna hear from you. You can either leave comments in the show notes, you can email me directly at info at utlradio.com. You could post something on Twitter, Facebook. It doesn't make a difference on how you get to me, but I need your feedback. All right, there's also, I'm gonna try to do a, um, a very short or condensed YouTube version of today's podcast. And uh, if you see it and you've got some feedback for me, please leave a comment in the comment section on YouTube. Here's the question, here's what I need. So, two books. The first book is Legal Writing for the Non-Lawyers, and the other book is sort of a general overview of the litigation process. Now, which do you guys want first? Which do you want to come out first? Because I'm gonna need to shift my focus one way or the other. The Legal Writing book really is aimed at helping you write like a lawyer and, and not have to go to law school to learn how to do it. And this is legal writing, um, everything from drafting a complaint an answer, a motion, some discovery demands, but it also goes to helping you get your thoughts together to write better letters if your neighbor is doing something that you don't like or something that you've got to alert your, your kid's school about. So that's the legal writing handbook. And as a matter of fact, if you're interested, the top 10 legal writing tips for non-lawyers, it is a, uh, a, a handout it's available on utlradio.com for free. All you have to do is click on the link and download it, and you can kind of get a sense of what the book is going to be like. The book is gonna have some samples and examples. So that's book one. Book two is the general overview of the litigation process, and I'm not sure if we should split it out into smaller books, like the pleading phase, complaints and answers, and then the discovery phase, so first, let me know what book do you want first? Do you want the legal writing book first or do you want the general overview of litigation book? And then if you want the general overview book first, do you want it broken down into smaller books handling sections of the litigation or do you want one giant volume that lists everything? So I'm gonna wait to hear from you guys. Please, please let me know what you think. Let me know what you would like to see and that's where we will shift our focus. I also want to thank today's sponsor. And today's show, again, was sponsored by DLSnet.net. DLS.net. If you're looking for someone to help you with your tech support, um, you know, cloud-based solutions, communications, 
you need somebody to help you store data or to create a private cloud, then check out DLS.net. That's www.dls.net. There will be a link in the show notes. All right, so uh, stay tuned this week. We've got our regular schedule back on. We've got our legal Q&A tomorrow, followed by business Q&A interview show on Thursday and weekly wrap-up on Friday. I'm going to be putting some videos up this week on the YouTube channel, so check that out as well. Please, if you get a second, just uh, you know, review us on iTunes. We're trying to build up our review profile on iTunes for the podcast, and your support is always appreciated and greatly needed, so thank you in advance for that. And please make sure that you keep your questions coming, because if you send in the questions, I will send you the answers, and that's really uh, helpful because I know what you guys need to, to know. And so keep those questions coming and I'll answer them. Don't forget also um, that it's really important that you kind of share this information with people around you and let them know about utlradio.com and, and how we can sort of give you things that you can't find elsewhere. You can look online, you can look for information and articles about how to do this and how to do that. But most often when you're dealing with an attorney or some sort of video, they're trying to get you to buy something or go somewhere. That's not what this is about. This is about helping you, giving you free information to help you go out and handle some of your own legal matters and business matters. So please share this information with your friends, your family, and your colleagues, and let them know about utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. I'll see you next time. off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings. Do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99 and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com.